Let's turn our Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter. We're going to pick up where we left off before Advent. We're going to look at verses 11 through 26 today. Let's stand as we honor God's word and read together. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes... And put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the villages the village. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes today. I think of the psalmist who said, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And in that prayer and in this text, In our own experience, we recognize that we are children of blindness. We come from blindness. We come from a place where we had no light. Help us to not forget that, Lord. For it serves us well to recognize what we once were and what we are now. It also humbles us to recognize that we are not yet fully what we shall be. 
We praise you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you'll help us to properly interpret it for your glory. May your Holy Spirit come and fill us afresh. May he lead us into truth. The truth of Jesus and who he is. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you have um, a moment, turn back a couple pages here and you're from this text and you'll see that this is a part of this narrative that follows the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000. And if you keep turning back until you recognize that Jesus is on a trip and he's in a trip that started by going to Tyre, which is in the northeastern, I keep doing that, don't I? Northwestern, I've got to figure out where I am. I'm, on, I'm, I'm east of the Mediterranean Sea, so I'm west. I keep, U.S., yeah, west, no, east. West, got it. You have it? I don't have it. So anyway, <laughs> here we are. So he goes um, northwest to Tyre, and then after that he went to Sidon, after that, he hooked over all throughout the area of Philip and continued to be Gentile territory and then went southward, past Bethsaida, all the way down into the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which again was the Decapolis, the ten cities. And he preached there, he performed miracles there, and he delivered people from satanic oppression. And then he looped back up and eventually came to Bethsaida by boat. He was doing this by boat along the, the shore and eventually then sailed, sailed back for Capernaum, which was the home base where Peter lived and the home where Jesus always went back to after these different um, missionary journeys. And so he's still in the context of the Gentiles, speaking to the Gentiles, reaching out for the Gentiles, reaching out for us, right? Eventually, we join that number as Gentiles. And as a result, it's important we see that context. And we see the presence of the Pharisees before this feast that he created, the 4,000 people that he fed, and the unique way in which he fed them. We see um, the presence of the Pharisees all the way back to the point where they were about to leave Capernaum, and they were questioning him about why the disciples weren't washing their hands. Why they're not washing their hands. And so the Pharisees are following him. Their presence is always there. In fact, when he healed the, the um, first of all, when he responded to the woman who was from Seraphonicia about, she said, can you heal my daughter? And he said, why should we take the children's bread <clears throat> and give it to the dogs? clearly making this statement of the dogs being the Gentiles. And then following that with a small section where he confronts the Pharisees because that language specifically calling this person a dog is really for them. And I can, you can just see kind of how they, 
how they responded. Of course you should tell to this Gentile dog. How dare you ask for anything from us and this kind of thing. And then, he makes, and then she makes this remarkable statement that follows that up and says, but even the dogs, they eat the, crap, the, 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 the scraps that fall off the master's table. And he is resolved, um, saw that awakening taking place in the eyes of this Gentile non-believer there in this deep within the Gentile territory. Pharisees going, even going into Gentile territory was outside of the law itself, but they're doing it for a very specific purpose, and that is they're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. And he knew that, said that over and again in the first portions when they finally started confronting him. They're confronting him to find a way they can kill him. So he has his enemies right there with him. And so we open up this section here in verse 11, and it simply says, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. There is an amazing, amazing amount of very interesting information just in this simple thing. The Pharisees came. Remember back in the first chapter in verse 12 and 13? At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Immediately after this incredible moment of his baptism, incredible moment, really, just the, the, the skies parted, literally ripped, and, ripped open, and a dove came down upon him and a voice was heard, this is my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased. Incredible moment. You'd think that would be just the inauguration of his ministry, and he would just go from there and go from height to height to height to height to height. And instead, all the Gospels show us this picture of him being driven by the Holy Spirit. Literally, as, as uh, one commentary interpreted, he was taken on the wings of the Spirit into the desert. And there, Satan came to him. <laughs> well, I would argue that, of course, we'd all argue this, that one of the most profound miracles that's ever been done anywhere, ever, in all of history was taking place right there among these Gentiles when he takes a few little loaves of bread and a few little tiny fish, as I said, just a couple fish, and he prays over, there, over them and they expand and they transform into enough fish to feed 4,000 people. Now that's a, as we looked at before, that's 4,000 men, women, and children, all added as one big number. And they were fed until they were satisfied. That word satisfies, we looked at before, it means to be overwhelmed, it means to be totally full, just I don't want anything else to eat because I'm totally satisfied. It's kind of how we felt. Well, some of you did. I, I don't overeat, so I don't feel this way ever, but, um, you know, the Thanksgiving meal and places like that, you know, we, we sit down and we think, I'm just going to have a little bit, I'm going to behave myself, and then, but I, it's all Thanksgiving, so I have that, and I have that, and I have that, and I have that. You just see it, I mean, we go around our little kitchen or whatever, we're picking up this little buffet style, you know, on the counter. I got a plate and I'm thinking, oh, that looks good. I'll have a little of that, 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 a little of that. We're like, I got this much food. You sit down and think, that's going to be inside of me in a minute. <laughs> and I think, that'll never happen. And then you go back actually and get some more. It's crazy. It's, um, at least 
I do. Of course, you're not like a, you're like a glutton like me or anything like that. Or, you know, this, this, this thing we do out here. You know, we have these dinners. This little thing we do, we all say everybody brings some. What was it? The um, sing-along thing, the, uh, the, the, the sing thing we did at Christmas time for all the uh, choir, uh, choirs that came, individuals that did things in English. What a spread, huh? Well, I don't know about you, but I had at least 15 people in the line say to me, now, Pastor, you going to try some of my stuff that I, I made over here? You're going to try some of this stuff I made over here? I'm going, of course I am. I'm going, <laughs> I need two plates and, you know, a top of a trash can or something to get back in there. <laughs> That's what satisfied means. You're satisfied, saturated. And here at the point of this amazing miracle taking place, immediately the Pharisees came to him. And they began to question him and to test him, asking. Now there's, a, there's a participle there, right? They asked him is not necessarily the correct way to read this. It said that the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, testing him and asking him for a sign from heaven. Just give us a sign and we'll know that you're really the Messiah. You're really somebody unique and somebody special. Just give us a little sign. Well, that would be great if, it, if that was the first verse and you're kind of coming up cold and this way you don't know what the context is or anything. But here, these people, these Gentile people, have been fed to an overwhelming level by clearly a miracle of reproducing this food for them. 4,000 people. 4,000 people. In one sitting, all fed. The Pharisees there as well. Of course, they, they're probably so holy, they might not have eaten any of that. I don't know. Or maybe they just went up to, you know, for the, so when they report back to Jerusalem, they could go test it a little bit. I'm going to test this bread and see if it's really bread, you know. And watching people, they didn't see people suddenly go into their coats and say, well, now, since that little boy gave some food, I think I'll give some food. You know how they process theologians. You know, they, they try to explain everything so that it doesn't have to have a miracle for it to happen. And their, their idea of the miracle is the miracle of heart. And so these 4,000 people who were hoarding their food and hiding under their, under their coats and didn't want to share with anybody, as soon as they saw that happen, they started sharing a little bit and sharing a little bit sharing a little bit. And then it became a lot for everybody. Well, does that sound like a miracle to you? I remember a guy named Tony, and one time he said, after we went to a lecture together, we were going to a conference together in Philadelphia, and it was about the Trinity and what's the nature of the Trinity, and they were going through different theories of what the nature of the Trinity was. And he said, you know what? Um, I don't think that is very, a very good explanation of the Trinity. And I said, why? He said, because... The Trinity seems like something that's incomprehensible. And whatever, all the things I heard tonight were very comprehensible. So I don't think that really could possibly be an explanation of the Trinity. Well, if this was a miracle and this was the miracle, well, I guess, okay, well, I do have, you know, a dozen fish in here. and I have, I have bread, you know. You know, that lump in my arm is not really my muscles. That's really a loaf of bread. And I think I'll share it with you or something like that. And, and if that's the miracle, that's not a very big miracle. Miracle is something that happens and it just overwhelms you. And it says these people were amazed by this. 
overwhelmingly so, to the point of fear, except for one group, the Pharisees. They said, uh, what, you know, basically, what have you shown us lately, Jesus? Not counting what we just now saw, let's give us a sign. Show us something specific for ourselves, like Herod did. Remember when, of course, this is in another gospel, but Herod, he wanted Jesus to come to him after the death of John the Baptist because he thought maybe he would work a miracle for him. We see this again in the book of Acts. The work a miracle for us, Paul, as a sign for who? For us, because I wasn't there for that one, and you know, I really want my own little sign. I want my own little miracle. And we say in debates, well, some people say, well, the only way I would believe if that podium rose 10 feet off the ground. Remember the Bonson debate. And the person used that little thing. And Bonson said, no, you wouldn't. If that thing raised up 20 feet, you wouldn't believe then either. It's not going to ever be enough. It's never going to be enough to give another sign which really leads us kind of to the answer to this issue. Before we go there, I want to just press on this issue of the, of the Pharisees coming to him. And we see this parallel really in the earlier verses of Mark chapter 1 when the, we see Satan coming to Jesus after this incredible moment of his baptism. I remember as a young pastor, I was a person that I really admired a great deal because he would always give me time. I was an associate pastor in this church and sometimes I'd be troubled and I'd work my way down to D.C. and I'd stop in on Pastor John Mears, who was a pastor of a, um, I forget the name of the church now, Evangel Temple, thank you. Oh, I think it was Gospel Temple, Evangel Temple. And he'd see me, and he would say, well, John, come on in and sit down. He was one of the people that was at my ordination. And so I would go, and we, he'd take me to some place in the church, and we'd sit by ourselves, we'd talk for a while. And he just, it was almost like he said, i got nothing else to do except be here for you today. Whatever's on your mind, go ahead and talk to me about it. And so I, we're talking about revival one time. Talking about the, the early days of the, the ministry of Evangel Temple. 1950s and the great revivals that took place in the Washington, D.C. area. And the revivals that were just spreading down from Canada at the time. And, and it swept into Washington, D.C. And he was a young minister there himself. And it was, the, it was the, the origin of the beginning of that church because he was one of the persons that was chosen to stay behind after the revival seemed to move on and to plant a church there with all the people that had come to the Lord. And he said it was, a, it was an amazing time, a time when there was tremendous miracles taking place and, and people were coming to faith and just a, their whole lives were changing. And they said a very curious thing to me. He said, however, and because they, they had tent meetings, he said prostitutes were making their living at the edge of those encampments in Washington, D.C., that these persons were coming out of these tents. Their lives had been changed. Their eyes were opened. Their, their sins are forgiven. They just felt like their whole life was ahead of them. And right there to meet them, as soon as they came out, was Satan waiting for them. 
I remember the night of my conversion in Gloria, New Mexico. And I never, I, I felt like I was so elevated in my understanding of God and His love for me. And just, it was just a life-changing experience for me. It was, very, it was very late. My brother Robin was with me and he had talked to me and prayed with me. And I just was awakened powerfully by the Holy Spirit. But I had to go to the bathroom. Imagine. And so I got up from the bed and went out of this hallway, down the hallway. It was a college dormitory. And I went to this bathroom and there was like, you know, 30 places to go to the bathroom. And I found one of them. And as I was standing there, I, I can still feel it. Just, it just kind of makes me get the chills. There was this presence of this evil around me. To the point I was like, I didn't want to turn around. I thought, these, I thought there was something right there with me. Not realizing that, you know, you become awakened to spirituality. And not, not the, the only thing that's there is not just the Holy Spirit. You see the presence of the other spiritual reality that stands in opposition to it. Somehow you see the lines that are drawn that you didn't see before. You thought you were safe, but yet you're in grave peril. Remember in 2014, I was reading through Psalms as I try to do on a regular basis. And I just finished Psalms 56, 57, and 58. We just turned there. And no, just kidding. We're not going to read them. <laughs> and David, again and again, was talking about his enemies and how they were trying to kill him. They were trying to dethrone him. They were trying to undermine him. And clearly, he was not discussing Lucifer. He wasn't talking about Satan, Lucifer. He was talking about his oppressors, his enemies. And they were people. And they were trying to kill him and come against him in some manner. As I read that, I was impressed by that. I was also impressed by the fact that my sense of the enemy is theological. I have a New Testament perspective on what an enemy is, such as the passage of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Apostle Peter Talking about Satan or Lucifer said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What occurs to me today, and this is what I wrote in this journal, what occurs to me today is that I have a perspective where I casually say in my heart, Satan wants to destroy me. But he's restrained by the blood of Christ. The difference and the absolute vital difference is that David's enemies were real people. And he knew it. He knew who his enemy was. He knew they had an enemy. My enemies are not people, but Satan, an evil and unrelenting foe, but I often forget it. 
Lord, keep me in the new covenant context knowing that my enemies are not people, flesh and blood, but dangerous nonetheless. We come to Christ, we don't just, suddenly we're just protected. Don't you wish that was really true? If that's how you came to Christ thinking, I'm going to kind of come into the Christian context and I'll be safe forever, nothing's going to bother me. Well, if you discount everybody else, you still have me right? (laughs) That's one of our biggest problems. But the idea that the enemy comes, you think, what idiot, what person with blindness would be so blind that they would come to Jesus after he's worked this incredible miracle and ask for a sign? (laughs) Verse 12, it says, he sighed deeply. It's much the same response that Jesus gave when he visited his hometown of Nazareth and his family came out and they scolded him and they thought they could take charge of him somehow because he was out of his mind as they went down to Capernaum to see if they could bring him back. Remember that? And when though later he came into Nazareth and his whole town says he couldn't work many miracles there because none of them have faith. And he made this statement that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown among his relatives. His own people. There the text tells us in chapter 6, verse 6 that Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. We've made a lot about that word amazed, right? We talk about it all the time. We have this thing, amazing, it's so amazing. You know, it's amazing, it's only 20 minutes until 12 right now. It's amazing. You look so amazing today. Your breath's bad, but you know, you look good. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. You think, That's, they don't know what that word means. Amazing, and he was amazed, it said, at how little faith that they had. You'd think that if he's sitting there among them, that at least they would respect him for the miracle's sake. He said that that later in Matthew's Gospel. He said, if you don't respect me, if you don't see who I am, at least believe in the miracles that I've done. You know, do something to come off that position of doubt. Do something about it, of unbelief. And even he is amazed, amazed at how little faith people really have. Of course, that was his own family. (laughs) It says that he sighed deeply, a deep heart response to the depths of blinding sin that he saw among the people. Here it says that he sighed deeply. This is, it's not just, it's like this heart fall. Your heart falling. Because, and your, your breath follows it, like takes your breath away. That a person or persons would come and ask that kind of question. First, it's driven by the fact that they don't have any faith. I mean, even a person who, before that moment, if they come and they, are getting ready to be antagonistic, but they see a miracle like that. They would at least humble themselves before the miracle. But they're not doing that because of the depths of their depravity that's coming and driving it. 
And his heart felt this fallen heart, his this deep reaction that he's having is built upon two things. It's first of all built upon the depth of their depravity. But it's also a deep disappointment with their dark agenda, which comes from their fallen nature and their pharisaical, devilish agenda toward him. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. That seems like a contradiction. He just did a great sign. Just did a fantastic, amazing sign. And now he's saying no sign is going to be given to it. Well, this is not a statement that no signs would happen. But it's not a matter of happening. He just said no signs will happen. It says no sign will be given to it. That they don't, they don't take it. They can't grasp it. No matter how great, they'll never be able to satisfy the deadness and unbelieving heart. Literally, there will be no sign given to it that will satisfy or turn them from their dark agenda. So I'm just saying, if, he's, if that was the case, he would change his whole method of ministry, wouldn't he? First thing Jesus did, he'd come in and do a miracle. He'd do a sign. He'd do something no one ever saw before. Something that was incredible. And it was, they, they thought they saw things similar to his signs. And they, they first they thought he was a miracle worker or something like that. But then when you see these kinds of miracles, no one ever did anything like this. And the cloak that he was wearing that the Seraphonician woman tried to touch his cloak just so that she, or excuse me, the woman with the issue of blood so she'd be healed. It was a common thing for a person like a magician to have a, to have a staff or to have, you know, you know, the trilogy and the Tolkien trilogy. With, everybody's got a big staff with some kind of a thing on top that has power within it, right? It's got to be something that you have that gives you this power. She touches his garment. Think about it, just touch his garment. Find out it's not the garment, it's him. He's the one from which power is coming. And these persons in this dark depravity, Jesus made this statement, if darkness is your light, if, if lack of truth, if doubt, if fallenness, if brokenness, if hatred, whatever it is, if this is your light, if this is how you operate, this is the thing that gives you illumination is darkness, how great is your darkness? How great is their darkness? Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. He just didn't say another word to them. He just simply said that one thing. Nothing will ever satisfy you, basically. This generation will never have a sign that's going to satisfy them because the sign is not the reality. Why do you look at a sign? It says turn left. Or go. Or stop. Or Philadelphia. Well, you say a sign to Philadelphia. It's not, you're not in Philadelphia. 
It points to something else. It always points to something else. It always leads us to do some action or to go to some place or to stop or start. It's a sign that tells us to do something. It leads to another reality. You ignore signs and you can be in trouble real fast. I think that they should say on 270, just like they do on the Audubon, drive at your safest speed. John Mosley Hagos was telling us one time in a sermon, he said, he was over there and he said, in Audubon, and he's got his, this guy with his big, powerful car and he's, he's going about 85, 90 miles an hour. Thought he was really just flying down the road until someone went past him 140. <laughs> the signs point us someplace. They point us to someplace. Earlier, Jesus instructs his disciples to leave any house or persons who would not receive their message. Remember in the proponents of the Gospels, not the Gospels, this phrase, shake the dust off your feet. Leave that place and shake the dust off your feet. Walk away from those who resist the word of God. Now this doesn't doesn't lead us to say that the point here is that anybody who resists the word of God is ultimately going to hell. That was true, we'd all be going to hell. None of us were righteous. No, not one. That doesn't mean you saved or unsaved. It means none was righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned against the Lord. But it's instruction that agreement, or excuse me, that argument and that debate whether it's rational or not, providing miracles even and signs before people will never bring anyone to faith. There's only one way that people come to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't mean that my faith that I, it grows and grows and grows if I read the Bible more and more and more. That is a complete aberration of what that Scripture means. Faith Saving faith comes by hearing the Word of God, the message of Christ. You don't have to show a sign. You don't have to show a miracle. You don't have to out-debate somebody. You share the Gospel, and the Holy Spirit will awaken that person to the truths of the Gospel in the presence of His preaching. Paul goes in the same text where we take this wrong view of faith. He says, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless they're sent? And how can they go? For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Well, I can't do that. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Is that the Gospel? That's enough. Paul said, I want to make sure I leave you in 1 Corinthians 15, I leave you with that which I first delivered to you. The most important thing. If you're going to tell someone the most important advice for their life, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. He said that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, we shall be dead. 
For Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, I, I was reading through the book of Acts last week or so. What, and we're in, I'm looking at Paul. Finally Paul's saved and he's out of his thing. He gets about five or six opportunities to share his faith and defend himself. What does he talk about? Well, I was on my way to Damascus. <laughs> so there's this great light came and knocked me down. And some people say the off my horse, but knocked me down. And a light, a voice came out of the light and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord, that I would persecute you? And he says, I, Jesus, speak to you. And I, Jesus, transform this man's life. I mean, in, in our experience as Christians, as we come to the idea, what, what, how'd you get saved? You get saved by following your parents. You get saved by following the right church. You get saved by following the right preacher. You get saved by following the right husband or wife or brother or sister, you know. No, because Christ changed you. Do you remember the sermon? I don't remember the sermon. I know a little bit about the sermon, not much about the sermon. I remember enough that realized that what changed me was that simple message of the cross. The guy, Christ died for my sins. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day. Here we see Jesus pressing this point. He instructed his disciples to leave houses, to shake the dust off your feet. Just got back in the boat and left. You see the disciples sitting there ready to, now answer this question. And answer this question. They're all just starting to answer, ask questions. And he goes, unbelievable. You're asking me that question? And I've just dismissed 4,000 people. They're so full they can hardly walk. And maybe in some of them. He just said to the disciples, get back in the boat. Let's go to the other side. That's what they did. Disciples had forgotten to bring bread, it says. As he crossed over to the other side, the disciples forgot to bring bread. What's the context of that? It's the same context, right? They picked up seven baskets full of bread. And they forgot to bring any. Why is that? What we'd like to think is because that, that miracle has just profoundly changed their life. And they knew they didn't have to carry bread because Jesus could make bread anytime he wanted to. They just knew that now more than anything else they'd ever known. That's the reason why. We'd like to think that, right? That miracles and things like that make such an impression on us, we never, ever forget them. And we always just have this idea that you know, everything's fine now. As long as Jesus is here, we're fine. But more than likely, more than likely... They got so full of themselves. You know about you, when I get really, really full, I don't think about the next meal. I don't think about it. I just think about being full. And they were just thinking about being full. So it wasn't their abilities to trust Jesus that fed them, that, that, that he had fed them this way. That they were so full. 
They weren't thinking about the next meal. And Jesus said, quickly, let's get in the boat. Everybody get in the boat. We're leaving. They kind of look over there and see all these baskets full. And they just go, who can carry that, man? Forget that. I'm full. That's my perspective. It doesn't say that in the next verse, by the way. Just, that's what I, that's a way, a way to look at it. And so it said that they crossed to the other side. Well, there's a funny thing in this, this language of crossing to the other side. Because you think that means that they leave this portion right here along the Sea of Galilee and they go straight to that side over there, across to the other side. But crossing also was a way where you looped up to different places along the Sea of Galilee. So you go from this unknown city that we don't know anything about now up to Bethsaida. There's also a coastal town and to Capernaum. And they use this language of the other side or the other place, the next stop. And Jesus, when they arrived there, perhaps even as they were going there, it doesn't say that they arrived, then he said this, but in verse 15 he says, Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And I think we've already just touched this already. Herod wanted Jesus to come so he could see him perform a miracle, remember? And the idea of having someone come to see a miracle is it gets you completely off the subject of what a miracle is for, of what a sign is. It says that everyone was looking for a sign when they went to John the Baptist. They're looking for a sign. Are you the Christ, they said? Show us some sign of that. Well, that's not how it went. They went because they heard about signs that he was working. John the Baptist didn't ever work a miracle. Jesus said that. He never worked a miracle. But they saw something about him that rang true with what the Old Testament had treated, had spoken about the forerunner of Christ, this Elijah coming first and having this message to be the forerunner of him. He said in Malachi's gospel, the forerunner will come. And so they saw the idea that he was doing the work of a forerunner as a sign of the Messiah coming. Disciples had the hope for a sign. The people had a hope for a sign. Even the Pharisees sent people down when John was there to see if, if they could verify this was a, the true person. They asked him, are you the Christ? He said, no, I'm the forerunner. That's what I'm, the signs of my ministry are that I'm a forerunner. Jesus came. They asked him for a sign. And what did he do? He preached to the poor. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He, the gospel was presented. You know, these were signs of who he was rather than things that he could do. Now, I'm already setting us up for how we look at signs today, right? I remember going to a certain meeting, and it was in a time when my, our, our son David had had a very serious stroke, and, and then over a wonderful period of time, God healed him. Healed him. And I was telling this story to this group of people at his dinner one night. And just telling it because it was a testimony kind of thing. They wanted you to tell a testimony. So I told this testimony. You know, no one comes up to me and says, just generally, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Because I just know how close you are to God. Would you pray for me? That's not typically what people do. They come up to say, 
you sure about what you said there in that sermon or you know, something like that? But so my, I, don't have, I don't have a healing ministry per se, but man, you thought that I was Earl Roberts that night. Because I barely got finished before people come to the front and saying, would you pray for my son? Would you pray for my dog? Would you pray for my friend? Would you, would you pray for him? And I was with somebody else and they said, no, I want you to pray for him. That's somebody who doesn't understand what a sign is, right? A sign is not the power to do something. A sign is a miraculous, unusual, overwhelming, amazing thing that drives you toward the messenger of the sign. So they were missing it. And today we miss what signs are. You know, I don't have to go very far to just mention somebody that has some kind of a ministry. It's a prophetic ministry. It's a healing ministry. It's a deliverance ministry. And so what we do, we go for miles and miles around to go to that ministry so we can get that person who has the power to do that particular sign to do it to us. Jesus signs weren't something that drew people to him. Initially, they draw people to him because of the power of the things that he would do. But it brought them into a context where he taught them and he preached the gospel to them. He shared with them who he was and what his ministry was. If, if a miracle happens to us and it really ignites somebody, don't spend your time saying, well, you know, I've had this sign. I've had this power for a long time. You know, that's my power. No, my master graciously has presented this sign to bring you into an interest and a desire for him. I'm not a person who has the power of signs. I'm the person who has the sign of the one who has the power to save. Don't be afraid of the person who kills your body, Jesus said. Be afraid of the person who can heal your body and soul in hell. The person who is the sign, not the means by which they do their ministry. We see the same concept taking place here with the disciples. He says, watch out for the person like Pharisees and Herod, who they talk about a sign to perhaps even say, now I have a sign. Herod, he was was the biggest one in this illustration of this. And he just came right out and said, I want to see see this guy Jesus because he, he hoped that he could get him to do a miracle for him. Is that why you're with, that's why you came to God? See this direct pathway to complete success and prosperity and deliverance? How'd that go? Is that what we're after? Are we, I mean, does this song we sang today? When we all get to heaven. I'm going to be with the one who I've been wanting to be with. Be with the one who brings me into complete unity with God and peace with God. And isn't it curious, as he said this to them, uh, they themselves fell into the same category and and moving quickly to discuss this with one another. And he said, it's because we have no bread. That's why he's upset. He's upset because we didn't bring any of that bread. He's hungry now. Look, it's been a a little short trip to Bethsaida. He's kind of hungry again. We didn't bring any bread. How stupid of us. And the master's mad at us because we didn't, you know, God's mad at me because I didn't do something. You ever said that before? Heard anybody say that? God's mad at me. And that's why I'm having this problem I'm having. That's, a, that's another thing to talk about sometimes. <laughs> Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? 
You still not see or understand? Are, you, are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears that fail to hear? I, I can almost hear him saying this. Like those dudes that we just left on the shore back there? Is this what you're like? You're, you're just blind as them? Didn't you recognize like, that it's just ridiculous to say we want a sign when we just fed all those people? <laughs> Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 4,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? There's two miracles. He did it for a Jewish group. He said, 12. And I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000. How many basketfuls of pieces did they pick up? That was a Gentile feast. He gave one for the Jews and he gave one for the Gentiles. It's good to have small crowds and four, five thousand, ten, fifteen thousand people be able to feed them. And the answer is seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? That was a very rhetorical question, by the way. He wouldn't ask him, Do you understand now? He's like, Lights on, no one's home. You know, you don't look like you understand this right now. You're answering the right questions, but you look like you don't understand. Of course we do. Of course we do. Of course we do. I said, ask him one more question. Well, he came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Isn't it interesting that they're talking about spiritual blindness and the next thing that Mark decides to put into his gospel is a story about a blind man. Just a, just a coincidence, right? Just happened to meet a blind man after he had talked to everybody about being blind. It says that they brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And where do you think the people were? They went right outside the village with him, right? They just led him outside the village. Here's where it gets very interesting. It was with a Gentile. And the Pharisees are watching. And he spit on the man's eyes. What an insult. Except to people who really thought that's what a Gentile should have done to him. And he put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? This is, the, this is the, the, the text of Scripture where it didn't work the first time, but he worked harder and it worked the second time. That's what we always hear about this. Does it say anywhere that he, he prayed that he would be healed? He spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? How much can you see, man? How blind are you? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. I think what he's just simply saying is, I'm not completely blind. There's a great illustration of that right in our own church here. There's a person in our church that has been declared legally blind, but she still sees pretty good. Pretty good. But I got a feeling it's like trees walking around. That's, that's a pretty open definition of how blind you actually are. Who is that? In fact, I'll go up to her sometimes and I'll, I'll just stand next to her. And she's kind of just look, look, like, looking like this, and she's just waiting. I know she's waiting for me to say something. Because I don't think she can really tell who I am while I'm just standing there. I'm just like this, perhaps a large version of some things, but, you know. <laughs> am I right? Is that right? If you never said anything, you think you'd actually be identified? And then, and then <laughs> what I love is, you look so handsome today. <laughs> That's how my mother told me. I don't think she really cared either, you know, just, 
Because I'm her kid. I'm handsome. <laughs> Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. <laughs> Why would that story be there? Why would that story be there? You can, just, you can come into contact with Jesus. You can even be touched by him in some manner. In this case, it was by having spittle on you. Okay? And nothing really happens. Everything just keeps going the way it was before. But yet when he puts his hands on you, when he touches you savingly, our eyes are opened. We see a world that we did not see before. And any way we translate the world before. By the way, we're all blind. Doesn't mean we can't see anything. But everything we do see, we don't really recognize what it really is. Am I right? But when your life was touched by Jesus Christ, suddenly you interpret everything through Him. And it becomes clear it becomes real. It becomes a living relationship with God. Not just, yeah, of course, you know, this big statement today that they have these, where do they get these surveys and ideas for? I don't know. But then some of us have to study these things and write papers on them. But, you know, people are no longer religious, they're spiritual. And you have this question. Are you religious? No, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. We had somebody who run, was running for office recently. And they're going down the line. They're answering question after question after question after question after get to her. And the guy goes, remember this? Do you, do you remember those debates? Oh, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, <laughs> that may be a good thing. <laughs> Maybe good you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we are spiritual people. But we have a dead spirit that interprets everything until Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, opens our eyes, awakens us by the power of the Spirit, and suddenly everything changes, and we see things clearly after that time frame. That, after, after what we've looked at just now, I, I can just, if, if Mark was saying here today, and you say, well, why did you put that in there? Why is that in there? I think he'd say something very close to what we just said. I believe that's what the scripture is highlighting for us. That the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees is trying to get things to happen so that I can be satisfied somehow. So that I can see things my way, the way I want to see them. They see Jesus as a healer. I, my way of seeing Jesus, he's a healer. Or the way I, my Jesus is just a kind person. Or my Jesus is someone who just loves everybody. Or my Jesus accepts people for their... For, for who they really are. That's my Jesus. My Jesus. My Jesus wouldn't say that. My Jesus wouldn't do that. My Jesus, my Jesus, my Jesus. You know, I mean, it's like a, you know, multiple Jesuses. It's your Jesus, your Jesus, your Jesus. What is the Bible's Jesus? Who is the Jesus of the Bible? He's the one who comes and he becomes our Lord 
and our master. And we follow him. And we declare his gospel. Praise the Lord. Father, as we sang this morning, we want to see you. Open our eyes to see you. To see you high and lifted up. To see your train filling the pinfold. To see who you are. You're not hoping to see things work out. You're not trying to follow our plans and fix them. You have a plan that you're bringing us into. Awaken us, Lord. Awaken us today afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.